Well, as you just experientially learned, Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And here in this longest chapter, I think it's important at the outset to note there are many wrong ways to read this story. There's, there's many ways to springboard into whatever someone may want to talk about on a given Sunday. Right? You might say that Genesis 24 is this great love story. Cue Taylor Swift. But the bride and groom don't meet each other until the very last verse, so it's hard to say that it was that great of a love story. You might say it was the ancient forerunner to Christian Mingle. And, well, that, that might be a little bit closer, but I still don't quite think that's the point we're after here. You might say Genesis 24 is the ultimate go-to passage for youth pastors. After all, it seems 80% of youth group messages go towards either relationships or the will of God, and so they just keep coming back to the well week after week. You might say Genesis 24 is a call to reinstitute arranged marriages. And I might add, as a father of three little girls, I'm being moved more and more to champion that model. <laughs> Getting thumbs up from around the church this morning. You see, there's all sorts of interesting topics I could jump into from Genesis 24, but the point really isn't what I might say from Genesis 24. I sincerely hope you're not here for that. No, I, I, I hope that you came to hear what God intends and what God says in Genesis 24. So what is it that he intends from this passage? I think there's, there's some major themes that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis being reaffirmed here in Genesis 24, and we'll touch on those briefly. But then I want to expand a bit and see the unique contribution of Genesis 24, and that's where we'll start to get into our outline a little bit, and what this uh, Abraham sending his servant and going and finding Rebecca, a wife for Isaac, and her coming, and these dialogues and all of that means. The major themes that we see sort of being reinforced and reaffirmed are that of promise and providence. Two Ps, promise and providence. Of course, there's been the themes of promise of a Abraham being a blessing, of him becoming a great nation, Abraham receiving land, Abraham receiving this offspring. And of course, the, the promise of exceedingly great offspring requires both the son and a spouse for that son, and we've seen them both be provided. But there's also this major theme of God's providence. God's already provided a son, miraculously, in Isaac, a sort of foreshadowing of the miraculous provision of Jesus Christ, who would come to this earth, live a perfect life that we couldn't live, die the gruesome death we should have died, so that we could be saved, have forgiveness of sins, right relationship with God. Yes, Isaac foreshadows that eventual providence that would be seen. Along the way, Isaac is, uh, has a ram provided for him, this sacrificial lamb, again, pointing forward to Christ. A wife provided miraculously here in Genesis 24. And along this theme of providence, there's a phrase that's repeated four times in Genesis 24 that gets at this idea of God's providence. The phrase is God's steadfast love. It's one word in the Hebrew, the word hased. Maybe you've heard that word. Say it, say it with me, hased. It shows up in verse 12, in verse 14, verse 27, and verse 49. God's steadfast love. This word is used some 250 times in the Old Testament. It's a major theme of our Bibles. And yet here in Genesis 24, that word shows up more times than in any other chapter in the book of Genesis. Clearly, God's providential, 
Steadfast love is a major theme that we're supposed to see. And what his steadfast love means is not merely that God sees where we're at, but that he acts where we're at out of love. It's not merely that God is love, but that he shows love. It's important that we see that. So in Exodus chapter 15, after the Israelite people have been delivered out of Egypt miraculously, there's the song of Moses being sung, and they sing of God's hased, his steadfast love, saying, God, you saw us and you acted. You delivered us. Or in Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah finds out that the gates of Jerusalem are broken down and he prays, he says, God, please show steadfast love. Please act on our behalf here. You have to understand that this means that God's love is not just an abstract idea. It's not passive. It's not ethereal and other. No, it's active and it's concrete and it's working in our lives. John Piper would talk about God's steadfast love in this way. I think you see it on the screen. God does not simply see as a passive bystander. As God, he's never merely an observer. He's not a passive observer of the world and not a passive predictor of the future. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. And here in Genesis 24, we see up close and personal that God's steadfast love is active in the world. And as God acts, the other recurring theme is that we see Abraham's servant responding in worship. So if you look back at your copy of the Bible, I hope you'll keep that open this morning as we go back to it. Uh, Look at verse 26. This is one example of at least two that we see of the response of worship after God acts. Starting in verse 26, the man, this is Abraham's servant, bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, his said, and his faithfulness towards my master. Do we see the pattern there? God has made promises. He's faithful to keep them. This is his providential faithfulness. This is his steadfast love that fuels Christian worship. It propels Christian obedience. That's why this morning's sermon is titled Obedience Propelled. To see the pattern that's being kind of given, these major themes being brought out throughout the book. And today, we see how the major themes of God's promise and his providence propel obedience and the life of Abraham and Rebekah. That's how the, the major themes contribute to the unique contribution of Genesis 24. So if you take the whole sermon and summarize it in a single sentence, it would be this. The faithfulness of God must propel your obedience to God. The faithfulness of God must propel your obedience to God. What we'll do from, a, from an outline standpoint is merely look at first Abraham's obedience And then secondly, Rebecca's obedience and see how both of those flow out of God's faithfulness. And along the way, see how his faithfulness, God's faithfulness, ought to propel and compel our obedience. So we'll start with Abraham's obedience. Insert yourself for a moment into the life of Abraham. You pick up in chapter 24 and he's facing a conundrum of sorts. He's just been given this land that's been promised 
He's purchased it, he has it, he's commanded, do not leave the land. This land is for you, don't go anywhere else. I will fulfill my word, you'll have all this land. Your son, by the way, needs a spouse and you can't get a spouse from here. So find her a spouse without leaving but without getting someone from here either. You see the conundrum he's in. Do I find a spouse here or do I leave but I'm not supposed to leave, what do I do? So he says, I know what I'll do, I'll send my servant. I'll stay and in faith, Trusting that God has provided this land, he will provide this spouse for this son that's already been provided. We pick up in verse two. One of, if not the most awkward verses in the Bible, but we'll read verse two again and continue on and see what happens here. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. This is a gesture of, of serious, solemn agreement. Seemed to be the cultural norm at the time. Not exactly sure what's going on. Let's just be glad in the West that we shake hands. <laughs> Deal. Serious, solemn agreement. We, we can be grateful for that. And we continue in verse three. We read, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you come? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. You see, Isaac needs a wife. And Abraham knows that intermarriage with the Canaanite women will be devastating for raising godly offspring. And here, what I just read are the final recorded words of Abraham in the entire Bible. Next week we'll see his death, but this is actually the last time we see Abraham speaking. And so I think it's worth to go back and look at the last words that he said again, and we'll contrast those with the first words he said in chapter 12. Look at verse 7. Consider the final words that we have recorded from Abraham's life. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. Pause. Do you hear him reflecting on the faithfulness of God? He's done all these things. Here's what he's going to do. We continue the last part of verse seven. He will send his angel before you. He's going to act. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. By the end of his life, he's confident in the faithfulness of God. And he walks in obedience. The first recorded words of Abraham, Genesis 12 starting in verse 11, is where he says, you know what, Sarah, you're really beautiful, and they're gonna kill me on account of you, so let's lie and make up our own story, because I think we need to do things our way. It's interesting to see the contrast from the beginning to the end, that his sanctification was slow, and it was messy. I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. It's not always up and to the right and growing in godliness, although we wish it was. It took him a lifetime, actually, but this was a changed man because of the grace of God and the faithfulness of God. 
Not perfection that's required, but it is a direction of a life consistently being changed into the image of Christ. And so he sends this reluctant servant. And you can understand why the servant would be reluctant. He says, yes, I know God keeps his promises, but how is he going to keep his promises? I was talking to a, to a guy this week, and he said, it's kind of like God says, I, I got you, bro. And he says, yeah, I know that you got me, bro, but how do you got me, bro? Like, I kind of want to know some of these things, right? Yes, I know you keep your promises, but how is this going to happen? He's, he's cautious. He sees the difficulty out in front. He sees his own weakness. What if I don't keep up my end of the deal? How is this going to work? Isn't the how question right at the heart of this sermon series, Living in the Gap? God, I know you said you would keep your promises, but how exactly are you going to do that? What does that look like on a Wednesday afternoon at 3.30 when I seem to be gripped by fear and anxiety and anger at this situation? How are you going to keep your promises, God? I think the how question starts to tap into the heart of things for us, both the difficulty and the joy of walking by faith. From, from a difficulty standpoint, you ask your pastor, Pastor, how is God going to provide? It's a really easy answer. I don't know. <laughs> That's his business, not mine. He said he's going to, and so it's hard to not know how is God going to provide. But there's immense joy in it as well. Because when you watch him provide time and time and time again, and you start to sing that hymn, great is thy faithfulness. And it's not just a hymn, but it's real providence of God in your life. And you're remembering how he has provided. Yes, it's still difficult because you don't know how he's going to provide the next time, but there's immense joy in seeing him work and knowing that he's good. So what does Abraham say to this cautious, reluctant servant? He says, whatever happens, do not compromise. God's going to go before you. He's sending his angel. He's going to provide a wife. He'll do what he said. But if he doesn't, and I've somehow messed up and mixed this whole thing up, maybe I'm wrong about how this will work. Whatever happens, don't take Isaac there. Sit down, wait for God to do a miracle. You don't compromise. It's a timely word for us. I believe God will act this way. I'm taking action in faith, believing he'll act this way. But if it doesn't go how I expect, I'm not going to compromise. And you don't compromise either. Bible commentator Ian Duguid sums it up in, I think, a helpful way. He says, in the midst of difficult circumstances and an unforeseeable future, faith held firm to two things. God's faithfulness to what he had promised and the need for obedience. Whether or not that seems likely to work is not your business. Being faithful to God's revealed will is your business. Boy, I love that. Because it's so easy to get caught up in whether we think this plan will work or it won't. Let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do today and trust his grace for today. And we'll deal with tomorrow tomorrow. It's basically the idea of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Today has enough worries of its own. Trust my grace for today, and we'll deal with tomorrow when it gets here. Daily living by faith. You know, on this topic, I'm reminded of Corey Tenboom's story. Maybe you're familiar with her. Corey and her family lived in the Netherlands during World War II. They used their home as a hiding place for the Jews who were fleeing from the Nazi regime. 
And one of their hiding mechanisms was this trap door that they'd built in the subfloor underneath their kitchen table. The Germans suspected they were hiding Jews, but couldn't figure out how it was happening or precisely where in the home they were. So one day, the German soldiers came to their home demanding to know, where are these hidden Jews? We see them keep coming into your home. Now, if, if you imagine being in the front room that day as the soldiers pound on the door, you can imagine the difficulty for them. On the one hand, I could tell the truth about where they are, knowing that these Jews will be carried off and brutally murdered, and then they're going to come and arrest our whole family, and the same fate likely follows. But on the other hand, I could lie, dishonor the name of God, and then I have to figure out what, how does civil disobedience figure into all this. It's a complicated situation. You can imagine how difficult it would have been for them. Put yourself in that spot. So the soldier bellows, where are the hidden Jews? And Corey's sister Betsy pipes up and says, they're under the table. The soldier glares back, convincing they were being, convinced they were being mocked. There's no one under the table. I can see under the table. And they storm out of the house. And God provided for them. And it wasn't clear how it would work. It seemed unlikely that following God's path would work. And yet they were simply faithful to do the next right thing that God had placed in front of them. To cling to the faithfulness of God on one hand and the call to obedience on the other hand. And it's important that we recognize here, while God provided for their physical deliverance that day, it wasn't always so. God's providence doesn't guarantee a long, healthy life. It's never been promised to us. In fact, their family would later be arrested by the Gestapo taken off to concentration camps where Corey's father would die. She would spend a long time, uh, I think, in Ravensbrück. So it's not a guarantee that this life will be everything we dream it to be here, but we recognize that our calling is to be faithful to God's revealed will, to do the right thing today, to hold on to his faithfulness on the one hand and our call to obedience on the other hand. This is why Job would say in chapter 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully on a woman. I'm holding on to, I will do the right thing here. That's why Daniel, chapter one, would say he resolved in his heart. He made a resolution, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's meat. A couple chapters later, it's why Daniel's friends would say to the king, king, we're not going to worship you and our God is able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, he's still the king. We're still gonna worship him. We're not gonna do what you say. They held on to the faithfulness of God and the call to obedience because the faithfulness of God is what must propel your obedience to God. And I wonder if you just think in your life for a moment right now. You know, you know where the call to obedience in your life is under attack from Satan. You know where you're under attack to tolerate gossip in your life under the, concern, under the guise of concern for others. You know where you're being attacked and tempted to tolerate gluttony, calling it your own sweet tooth. You know where you're being permitted to, or where you're being tempted rather, to permit sexual sin or bitterness or anger or any number of things 
you know where that attack is at. You must hold on to the faithfulness of God. He will do what he said and the call to obedience. We were over at some friend's house a couple weeks ago for a, a bonfire, a cookout. This was before it had rained. The burn ban was still in effect. And so we were kind of talking about the dryness of the area. And, uh, and, and two things were, were very clearly in view. One was the danger of the fire. So we, we, we didn't have a fire. We'll clear that up for a second. It was one of those little... Uh, those little fire pit deals that have the propane underneath and it's, you know, it was safe. Okay, we're, we're not in violation here. We were talking about what would happen if we started the big normal fire and the cornfield catches and you find yourself on the news for all the wrong reasons. And, you know, there, there's the one piece to keep in view there. At the same time, it's like, yeah, because that's a certainty, we can't have this fire. We got to do things differently. We have to change how we act. And in a sort of parallel way, we keep a firm grip on the faithfulness of God, his steadfast love that works in our lives, and it compels us to live differently. The danger of the fire compelled us to live differently. The faithfulness of God compels us to hold tight to the call to Christian obedience. Friends, be faithful to God's will in your life today and simply do the next right thing. That's what Abraham did. I'm not gonna leave the land. I'm not gonna take a wife from here. Be faithful to God's will and do the next right thing. Here's the second part, not just Abraham's obedience, Rebecca's obedience. She too was motivated by the promises of God and the providence of God, held on to his faithfulness and it compelled her obedience. She is shown in this passage to be a great woman of faith. Now later in her life, she would fail in significant ways, so let's not make her out to be the Messiah here. But Moses, in writing Genesis, is abundantly clear. He portrays Rebekah as a woman of great faith. She's portrayed as this new matriarch of Israel, almost like a new kind of Abraham, in a sense. There's great parallels. What are some of those parallels? Well, the guests show up, and she runs to show hospitality, just like Abraham did in chapter 12. She's called to leave her dwelling place and go to an unknown land, just as Abraham was. Through God's providence, she becomes wealthy, just as Abraham did in chapter 14. And she's promised great offspring. Look back at verse 60. We see it right there. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. There's a parallelism here. She's a great woman of faith. She obeys. And in Isaac and in Rebekah, in their marriage, we see a picture of marriage that's driven more by character than by chemistry. They hadn't met each other. So I just wanna speak for a moment to some of the single people in the room and I wanna urge you to consider the character of the person that you might marry. Now of course, as a starting point, as a bare minimum, you're going to say, or you ought to say, this person is at least a Christian. But many people say they're Christians, but they wanna live with one foot in the world. And so that merely someone says they're a Christian is probably not a high enough threshold. You ought to be looking for more than that. It's not to say that chemistry doesn't matter in a relationship, it certainly does, but character is a lot more important than chemistry you may have right now. So you may share hobbies, you may share interests, I hope you find each other attractive. These are all good sparks to get things going, but the character that you possess, 
And the character your potential spouse possesses is far more than a spark. That's the wood logs that go on the open flame that keep the fire burning. You've got to think about these things. So you carefully watch how a prospective spouse might serve in their church, how they respond when they are wronged, how they receive criticism. Are they discipling anyone? Are they evangelizing? Are they giving generously even when they don't have very much? These are some of the questions you consider to see, is this person of high character? Will they be a soulmate that helps me grow closer to Jesus? They say, follow me as I follow Christ. And I understand at the beginning, it's exciting and you've got all those different emotions and the hormones are raging and you wanna say, this is the one. Friends, slow down a bit. Consider what is their character? Is it godly? Because godly character matters far more than great chemistry. This picture of Rebecca and her character, it gives us a snapshot of what a woman of faith ought to look like. So I think there's four things that we can see specifically from Rebecca's obedience that sort of paint this picture of what a woman of faith ought to look like. First one is she's hospitable. When I say hospitable, all I mean by that is there's a friendly reception of guests. Doesn't mean you have to embody the, the Southern Living magazine and everything you see on Pinterest and do it up like that. It just means a friendly reception of guests. Rebecca draws water for Abraham's servant, for his camels, invites them to stay at her house. Friends, hospitality is a really big deal in the Bible. Friendly reception of guests. Yes, it's modeled here by Rebecca, but previously by Abraham and Sarah. First Peter chapter three, given the requirements for pastors, it's a requirement that pastors be hospitable. And then in Romans 15, Paul actually connects hospitality to the gospel. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He says, this model here, give a friendly reception to guests. And so you say, well, I'm I'm not a good cook. I can't be hospitable. That's okay. Papa John's does a great job. (laughs) Well, I I don't have a very big home. I can't have people in. That's all right. Have a friendly reception of guests to your play date or to a Colts game at Buffalo Wild Wings or to your iguana's dinner. There's all kinds of ways you can have a friendly reception of guests without having them into your home or your apartment. Just a few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who who visited Parkside, and they said, my very first Sunday, I was getting ready to walk out the door, and a woman chased me down from behind and said, hey, we talked, I know today's your first Sunday, do you have lunch plans, would you like to join us? She She said, I'd never experienced hospitality like that. It's a mark of a changed person to have such a friendly reception of guests, not just a smile and a wave, but I'm actually inviting you in. Rebecca embodied hospitality, and it's important as we grow in faith that all of us, both men and women, grow in hospitality as well. But secondly, not just hospitable, Rebecca was a beautiful virgin. Look back at verse 16. Here's what we read. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. Now, maybe you're a bit like me. You grew up in what is now called purity culture with books like I Kissed Dating Goodbye and The Bride Wore White and that whole thing. Purity culture gets a bad rap these days. Maybe maybe many of you know that. Maybe you're not sure what I'm talking about. 
The, the, the point, there's some legitimate criticisms to say this. It's very possible and has been frequently practiced that there's legalism here, judgment of certain sexual sins while turning a blind eye to other sins right in front of us. So that absolutely needs to be rejected. But because of these missteps, we seem to just stop talking about the need for sexual purity altogether. Like, well, we missed the mark in this way, so let's just go ahead and miss the mark the other way. And I say, why don't we just try and hit the mark? Not that we're perfect or we're ever going to get there, but let's not let the pendulum swing too far here. I understand that the moment we start to talk about sexual purity, it gets to be a delicate topic for a whole host of reasons. So hear me out on this and recognize this applies equally to men and to women. It's not some sort of a single gendered thing. Some of you will say to me, Justin, this, this purity talk, it's, it's fine and all, but that ship has sailed for me. I've made mistakes here. I regret them, but it, there's no coming back from this. Is God done with me? Let me just remind you that God in his grace allowed the messianic line, the line of Christ, to flow through prostitute Rahab and the adulterer David. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't hear me delivering this call to purity from the scriptures and think that it somehow means you're a second-class citizen or God's second best is all you have left. No, God works through and makes beauty out of our mistakes. He redeems our life from the pit in all ways. Claim those promises. But at the same time, we must not shrink back from what God has said or be ashamed of the Bible's sexual ethics merely because they're frowned upon in today's culture. Can't do that. You know, on most college campuses today, it is far more shameful to be a virgin than it is to be sexually active. It's strange to dress with modesty instead of wearing very little in all the regions where we want to wear very little. Again, don't hear this as merely or only a female thing. Men's clothing, especially in the lower half, can be awfully revealing these days. Right? The knife cuts both ways. So parents, parents, we need you to step up to the plate here. We need you to step up to the plate and what's in your own wardrobe what you model. We need you to step up to the plate in discipling your kids and to how they think about sexuality and what they wear. Because I promise you, if you don't disciple them into the biblical teaching of what God clearly lays out, there is somebody, actually a whole bunch of somebodies in this world, ready to disciple them in the other direction as fast as they can go. You gotta step up here. We need you. But beyond what we wear in public, it's never been easier through our phones than it is right now to see somebody else naked or be naked for someone else. So men, let me speak to you on this. You never ask for that from a woman, ever. Maybe you have in the past, you don't anymore. You're not going to do that. You're not gonna request that of a young lady, a young woman, one of God's daughters. No, we're gonna to commit to being men of integrity, building a world of nobility where God's daughters are honored. We strive together in that regard. And ladies, if a guy asks, the answer is always no. Always. 
He says, oh, it's just, just easy, just, just one quick picture. No. No, we're not going there. You stand firm, and then you, you talk to your parents or a youth leader, somebody you trust, say, this is difficult, I, I need some help to do the right thing here. I want to hang on to the promises of God, I want to do the next right thing, and this is really, really hard. Don't know what to do, help me out here. We take the Bible seriously. And I'll remind everyone, maybe you've failed here. You've given something away that you can't take back. Friend, look at me. Look at my eyes right now. Your failure doesn't define you. The grace of God defines you. Just like your righteousness can never define you, the grace of God must define you there as well. So cling to his righteousness, whether you look at your past and think that it looks pretty good, or you look at your past and you think it looks pretty bad, you must cling to Christ and Christ alone. Don't let either of those successes or failures become your stumbling block. He's the solid rock. There is no other solid rock. This is a giant topic, I get that. We can't say everything that needs to be said in this venue and the time frame we have. So if there's other questions, things you're wondering about, how do we hold on to the faithfulness of God and the call to obedience here, would you please come and talk to me afterwards? Might be something where we sit down and talk. Might be more appropriate for a female counselor to sit down and talk through things. But together, as the people of God, we commit to love each other. That's what it is to be a member of a local church. We commit to love each other. And we're gonna commit to walk together through whatever God brings our way. Whether that's good or whether it's bad. So Rebecca was first hospitable. Yes, secondly, she was a beautiful virgin. She fought for her purity. Third, Rebecca was a hard worker and generous. She wasn't just a pretty face. She knew how to get her hands dirty as well. In fact, some estimates for the amount of water that she drew up range as high as 150 gallons. Now you think about taking the one gallon milk jug, dropping it down there, filling it up, and pulling it up 150 times. This was not a one day impulsive, oh, I'll work hard here. She'd made a habit of working hard. Proverbs 31, in describing the, the wife of faith, uh, uh, says that she's very industrious. It gives many verses to explaining the woman's work ethic. She works hard with her hands, works hard with her mind. And just like the other things we've talked about here, yes, a work ethic can become your identity. It can become idolatrous. Yes, that's possible. But recognize that the woman of faith honors God by working hard with her hands and hard with her mind for the glory of God. And not only does she work hard for the glory of God, her hard work allows her to be generous. Isn't that right? She works hard at drawing up the water so she can be generous with the guests. Ephesians 4 speaks to this a bit. It says there's basically three options. Option one, you can steal to eat. Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Option two, you can work to eat. That's a better idea. Move in that direction. But he says in Ephesians 4.28, there's a third option that's even better than those two. Work hard so you can be generous and give to those who don't. That's what Rebecca embodies here. I'm a hard worker and I'm generous. And I glorify God by working hard with my hands and hard with my mind so that I can be generous. Fourth, final thing about Rebecca. She was full of faith. Full of faith. Let me take you back to the text of Genesis 24. Picking up in verse 55, I'll read through verse 58. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while. 
at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. This call to stay a little longer, 10 days, it might have been a legitimate week and a half kind of offer. There's a good chance it's a Hebrew idiom for let's just stay a really long time. Why that was, we're not exactly sure. In verse 30, Laban appears to be a greedy man. He sees all the jewels and the bracelets and all of this that they have. So maybe he's thinking, well, stay a little longer. We can negotiate a little more and I can get some more wealth out of this and we can delay obedience right now so I can get something out of it. We're not sure. We're speculating a bit. But Rebecca voluntarily says, I'm going to go. And what's the foundation of her immediate obedience? Look back at verse 56. We see, the Lord has prospered me. The Lord has intervened here. The Lord has been faithful. I've seen his providence, his steadfast love. And because of that, she says, I will go. You think about where she's at. You think that wasn't scary? Of course it was scary. You think she didn't have some anxieties? She had major anxieties. How could she not? She was living by faith, not by fear. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we would really just sit down and try and calm our souls down and be honest, we know there are major points in our life where fear is just front and center. That's just how it is. That's all we can see right now. We know that living by faith is the right way to live, but that doesn't make the fears immediately go away. We're still right stuck in the middle. And here we find a woman of God, a woman of faith, showing us the way. Here's how we do this. She had to have questions that remained unanswered, but what does she say? I will go. I'll hold on to the faithfulness of God and my call to obedience. Recognizing I don't have all the answers yet, I'm gonna do the next right thing. Married men in the room, we pointed out some characteristics from Rebecca here. I know you see these in your wife. If you don't, that's a you problem, and ask the Lord to help you see what is already there in her, and praise her for it. Tell her, I see the grace of God in your life in this way. I see you embodying these traits of a woman of faith. Single men, look for these traits in a wife. Ladies, whether married or single, look at Rebecca here as an example of godly faith. And as she strove to be like God, you strive to be like her. And for all of us, whatever our stage in life, don't miss this overarching pattern. The faithfulness of God propels my obedience to God. So you make a resolution this morning. I make a covenant. I resolve. I'm going to hold to the faithfulness of God. I'm going to remember it. I'm going to talk about it at lunch today. I'm going to send an email to someone to remind them of the faithfulness of God. I'm going to ask somebody I know that's a Christian, tell me a story about how you saw God be faithful and provide. I'm going to remember the promises of God and his faithful intervention. And then in view of that, I'm going to resolve to do the next right thing, whatever is in front of me. Maybe it's something I need to go and invest my life in. Maybe it's an area of sin that I need to put to death. Maybe it's hospitality, we just saw that. Maybe it's sexual purity in one way or another. Maybe it's just a matter of becoming a harder worker. 
not being lazy. Maybe you're working hard, you need to be more generous like Rebecca was. But I say in view of the faithfulness of God and grounded in the faithfulness of God, I commit to walk in obedience.